Good morning. <laughs> Would you open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9? That's where we'll be, Isaiah chapter 9 today. <clears throat> if you're there, say amen. All right. Father, we just uh, come to you today. We thank you for your, your marvelous word. Thank you, Father, that we can gather together as a community and that we can uh, lift up prayers to you. Lord, your word tells us they are a, uh, an offering, that it's a bowl of incense in heaven that you pour, poured out before you. And so we, we offer our prayers up to you for our community and for the church. And, and Lord, even as we think right now about what we're about to do, Lord, we ask that you would meet us right now, Father, that you would meet us by your spirit, that you would pour out your spirit upon us and upon me, or that you would uh, help us to be good hearers, Lord, and that you would help your word, help me to make your word plain and clear to your people. And so, Lord, we want to glorify you. We want to honor you. We want to do all those things. And so we pray, Father, that you would, uh, you would help us toward that end this morning. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. All right. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9 today. And so if, you, if you're not already there, open up to Isaiah chapter 9. That's where we'll be. And so in Isaiah 9, I'm going to read this to you. <clears throat> but there will be no gloom for, for her who was in anguish. The former time he brought them into contempt. He brought them into contempt, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a, in a land of, of deep darkness, on them light has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they, as when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as in the day of Midian. For every, every boot of trampling, of trampling were in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Desperation can have an interesting effect on people. You ever notice that? Desperation can have an interesting effect on people. Some people, for some people, desperation can have a complete, a complete and thoroughgoing humbling effect. Uh, one's desperation can cause a person, uh, can break your spirit and chasten your soul to such an extent that it causes you to, to rethink, to reconsider, and ultimately to repent. On the other hand, some people don't respond in that way at all. 
Desperation doesn't do that for them. For them, desperation doesn't soften them, but it hardens them. It makes them bitter. It inoculates and estranges them from the remedy, even though the remedy might be right in front of their face. Have you ever been in a situation so desperate and dire that it made you long for change? Have you ever been in a situation so desperate and dire that it made you long for change? If you know how this feels, then you, you know something of how some of the saints in Judah were, were feeling during this time. Now, to bring you up to speed, God is hiding his face from the people of, of Judah, to put it in, and Israel, frankly. Um, but to put it another way, long gone are the days of David. These are the days of the divided kingdom. Israel has been divided on two separate entities, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But suffice it to say that both kingdoms, both Israel and Judah, are in a very, very dark place. At this point in history, Judah is, is, is led by King Ahaz. And Ahaz didn't possess the same military might as David or the wisdom of Solomon or any of those kind of things. And part of the reason for that was because he was an exceedingly evil man. Under Ahaz's reign, wickedness was allowed to flourish. Uh, he allowed it to snowball, and he even fanned it into flame. Second Kings describes his reign this way. It says, And he, Ahaz, did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, uh, as his father David had done. But he walked in the way of the kings of Israel. He even burned his son as an offering, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord had drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. You hear that? In other words, instead of being a king who promoted righteousness and covenant faithfulness, he led the people who needed no encouragement. He led them toward even greater expressions of sin and apostasy. And as a result of this, the Lord humbles Ahaz and he makes him weak. And he gives him over to his enemies. And you can see this in 2 Chronicles 28. And these realities kind of set the stage for what we're seeing in Isaiah 7 through 9. Right? And so what's interesting about Ahaz is that uh, when Ahaz experienced this time of humbling, this time of distress, this time of desperation and suffering, instead of turning to God, Ahaz chooses to double down. He actually chooses to, to, to stick his heels in further. Listen to this. This is from 2 Chronicles 28, uh, 22. For in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same King Ahaz. For he sacrificed to the gods of Damascus that defeated him. And he said, because the gods of the king of Syria helped me, I will sacrifice to them that they may help me. But they were a ruin of him and of all Israel. And Ahaz gathered together the vessels of the house of the Lord and cut in pieces the vessels of the house of God. And he shut up the doors of the house of the Lord and he made himself altars on every corner of Jerusalem and in every city of Judah. He made high places and to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger the Lord God, the God of his fathers." And so notice, instead of responding to the discipline of the Lord by humbling himself and repenting, he, like the rest of Judah, chooses to harden his heart toward the Lord and toward his messenger. And, and he, he, instead, he doubles down and even more intensely worships the false gods. And so even after all of this, the Lord continues to approach Ahaz. Uh, he comes through Isaiah and he invites him to trust in him yet again. 
And he gives them this opportunity. He says, he invites them, make a sign. Ask of me a sign. Pick anything from the, from the depths of the grave to the heights of heaven. But Ahab refuses. And because of this, God begins to go into judgment again with him. And he goes into further judgment, not just against him, but against everyone who has followed him. And so by the time we get to chapter 8, God has told us that he will call uh, Assyria. And Assyria at this time is a massively powerful imperialist nation. Uh, They had a reputation for conquering and overcoming all the nations nearby. And so God tells them that they will now come to Israel and they will take them captive. And they will also come and invade and occupy Judah. And so when we get to chapter 8, one of the things that God tells uh, Isaiah in hearing all of this is he warns him to continue to distinguish himself from the people of Judah. He warns them that uh, him and his remnant that not to live as they do and not to, to buy into the conspiracy theories that they do, but to continue to trust in the Lord. And he warns them not to do the things that they do as they at this time were consulting mediums and they were practicing necromancy and doing all kinds of things like that. And so he's saying the reason why people, they do this is because they have no dawn, they have no light. Not only that, in verse 21 of chapter 8, he reminds them of their fate. He says this, they will pass through the land captive, greatly distressed and humbled. And when they are hungry, They will be enraged and they will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God and turn their faces upward and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress, darkness and the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness. And so he's saying that they will look up to the earth for help, but the only thing they're going to find is darkness, distress and anguish. And so what I'm going to argue this morning is this. God intends, or excuse me, God is determined to end our gloom and increase our joy through the saving acts of the Son he gives us. God intends, excuse me, God determines to end our gloom and increase our joy through the saving acts of his Son that he's given us. And this morning I'm going to show you that this week and on Friday through through Isaiah 9. And so, That's where we're going to go. And so the first point I want to make to you this morning is the promise of glooms decrease and joys increase. The promise of glooms decrease and joys increase. So I want you to see that in in chapter uh, 9, verse 1 through 3. All right? And so if you're there, we'll begin looking at this. And so verse 1 of, um, of Isaiah 9 says this, But there will be no gloom for him who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt to the land of Zebulun and the land of Natali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and in the land of Jordan, the Galilee of nations. And so verse 1 begins with this this series of contrasts. You guys notice that? It it contrasts the latter time with the former time. It It also speaks to the absence of gloom where there once was gloom, if you see that passage, right? Picking up where we just left off. And so in Isaiah chapter 9, he begins with a a surprising statement. He begins with a promise that in the future, but not in the immediate future, because all of this is in the future at this time, but he says in a more distant future, Judah's fortunes will be reversed. He says things are going to change. Though she is in gloom and of anguish today, and she's suffering the purifying judgment for her sins today, and though she is despondent and depressed for her many self-inflicted wounds, he promises that a day is coming when there will be no more gloom for the one who is in anguish. 
meaning that God had cast her into darkness because of her commitment to darkness and her commitment to sin, he says that will not always be the case. She will not always live in darkness. And so he promises that the misery and the consequences of her sinful decisions will one day be washed away and that there'll one day be a thing of the past for her. Look again at uh, verse 1b. He says, he goes on to explain it. He says, in the former time, he brought Zebulun and Naphtali into contempt. And the land of Naphtali, uh, in, this, in this case, Naphtali and Zebulun represent the northernmost portion of the nation of Israel. And so Zebulun was um, a place that was caught in the apostasy just like the rest of Israel. They were just like the rest. And what's interesting is uh, later down the line, King Hezekiah, who's Ahaz, uh, uh, the person who follows him, he comes and he seeks to reinstitute the Passover because the whole nation had been functioning in apostasy and Hezekiah comes and he tries to resurrect uh, following after the Lord. And so he sends his letter out through all of uh, Israel and, and also through all of Judah. And he's only the king of, of Judah, but he sends it to both. And as he does it, he, he begins proposing to the people and calling them to celebrate the Passover again. And the people of Naphtali and, Ze- and Zebulun, you know what they do? They laugh this guy under the table. They completely laugh him to scorn. That's how they react to what he does. And so that's how far gone they were at the, at the mere uh, mention of turning back to the Lord. They, they laugh at him and make fun and mock what he's trying to do. And because of this, Naphtali and Zebulun were among the first nations to be uh, captured and exiled. They were that, that first place right on the edge when Assyria begins going after, coming down, uh, coming south, they were the first people they hit. They were in that first wave, right? And so the text says that they were brought into contempt. It literally means, it literally reads that he made them to be light or he caused them to be treated lightly, which means that from a place, uh, they went from a place of respect and honor, a place of carrying a sense of weight to being seen as small and insignificant, and this is the way that the exile kind of caused them to be dishonored and disrespected. In, a, in, in contemporary kind of slang, people say, you got to get your weight up, right? We say things like, you got to get your weight up. You guys know what I mean by that? It means you got to get your, your clout up. You got to have your respect up. And what he's saying here, when you talk, when the Hebrew, when you look at what it's saying, it's saying a similar thing. It's saying that part of what God did is that Israel, or excuse me, Judah had a weight to them, but God caused them to be treated lightly. He caused them to be uh, seen as contemptuous. He caused them to be despised. He caused them to be lowered and humbled and seen as insignificant and as nothing in the eyes of the nation. He caused them to be dishonored. And so God did that to Judah. And so they went from having weight to having no weight. And he says he did this in former times in order to humble them. But in the latter times, he says he honors or makes glorious. Literally, he makes them heavy that makes heavy the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan and the Galilee of the nations. And so God is promising uh, to honor what he has just dishonored. He's saying he's going to elevate again Zebulun and Naphtali uh, as all those places around the sea of Galilee. Now, it's worth mentioning that the Galilee of the, of the Gentiles, this is the only place where that phrase is mentioned because normally they wouldn't call it this. But one thing that's important to know is that during this time, Galilee uh, was a place, uh, Naphtali, was a place that was near this place. And so upward expansion would, would reach into this. And during this time, Naphtali and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Zebulun were places that were always mixed, tracking back to uh, the book of Judges. 
In the book of Judges chapter 6, we read that uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, they were supposed to clear out the rest of the Canaanites, but they didn't. They chose not to. And since that point on, it was always a mixed place. It was always a place mixed with both Hebrew and Gentile. But God is here promising that he's going to do a new work. And he's promising that he's going to begin uh, this work by the way of the sea and in the, the Galilee of the Gentiles and all of these places that are near Naphtali and Zebulun. And so historically, these places were mixed. And what you're going to find also is during the, uh, the, the exile, what happens is Assyria's policy was to do this. They would come and take you from your place and move you to another place and move other people to your place. And so what ends up happening is your place is inhabited now. The place of Zebulun and Naphtali will be inhabited by Gentiles. And so God is promising here not just to elevate his own people and to honor his own people, but the people the way by the sea, Philistia, and all these other places that are near the sea. And so he's promising again to not just to honor his own people and restore them, but to restore them as well. And so he's promising to glorify the Gentile filled lands as well. And so the major question is, how will the Lord do this? Verse 2, and the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a great light has shone. And so verse 2 clearly points out that God has begun to remove the gloom and restore the honor by acting on his people. And even though they weren't necessarily seeking him, notice Isaiah describes this incident as one in which the people are walking in darkness and they have seen a great light. And the great light has shone upon them. It's acted upon them. Notice these people aren't looking for the light. And they walk in darkness, which means they're living in spiritual unrighteousness. They're living in darkness. Yet God acts upon them, shining upon them. And he sends this illuminating light to enlighten them, even in their darkest moments. And so God's redeeming love is not overcome by uh, his aversion to sin. You ever think about that? Sometimes we think about that. We say things like, uh, God can't stand this or that. And there's some truth to that. We see that in scripture. But at the same time, God's redeeming love is not overcome by our sin. Notice these people are living in darkness. They're not living according to his light. And if we're talking about Gentiles, they're the very people that Israel learned all of these crazy things from. They're the ones where they learned the necromancy and the idolatry and the things of that. And yet God's redeeming love initiates and and turns to them, even in the darkest of places. And he pours out the floodlight of his grace on them. And so um, God initiates this, and it's not because we deserve it or they deserved it, frankly. Um, It's not because they were model citizens. We know that they were not. But he promises that he will pour out his light on them. And one thing I haven't mentioned up until this point is all these passages, you read them and they, they read in the past tense. And part of that is because is in, the, uh, in, in, in Isaiah and in the prophets in general, they use this thing, this, this idiom called the prophetic perfect, which means they say something as if it's already happened. They'll speak about it in past tense because that's how certain they are that it's going to take place. And so as you read this passage, you read things, and it's reading almost as if it's already taken place. But that's because that's how sure Isaiah is that God will accomplish this. And if you look down at that last verse in this passage, what does it say? The zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. And so God has committed himself to ensuring that this will happen, that he will redeem and regather his people, and there will be an end to their gloom and also 
that he will redeem and illumine others. Now, it's worth mentioning that when we talk about this light, uh, we're talking about something very specific. And at various, points, at various points in Scripture, the light metaphor is used in a variety of different ways. And so light can speak to, in the physical world, light illumines, um, uh, it reveals, it clarifies, and it guides. And the figurative light in Scripture does the same, right? In the Hebrew Bible, sometimes the Scripture and the commandments of God are seen as the light. They guide God's people, um, and they're also closely connected to maybe the path of light. But that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about either of those. Um, though those are, are really important kind of pictures, what's actually happening here is a different use of light. Um, the light of God can also refer not just to inanimate objects, but it can refer to a person. And so God is called in Scripture an eternal light. In Isaiah 60, God is called an eternal light. And even beyond that, in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, God refers multiple times to this enigmatic, illuminating figure. And he says he, uh, through his presence in ministry, he will serve to illumine, reveal, clarify, guide, and convert God's wayward people. Listen to this. This is from Isaiah 42, 6. It says, I am the Lord, and I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, uh, from prison, those who sit in darkness. Listen to this from Isaiah 49, 6. It says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And so notice, this is an illuminating figure. The light that God is talking about in this case is his own servant. It's the one who he'll use to regather his people and to bring them back into connection with himself in order that his salvation may reach the ends of the earth. And so as we look at the the New Testament, as we go through Scripture, one of the things we see is this is the same person who says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but he'll have the light of life in John 8, 12. This is the same one who Matthew identifies as Jesus when he says, he says in, uh, in, in, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way by the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. In other words, notice Jesus in his life, he comes to reach these people. And he strategically in his ministry, he moves, it says he moves from Nazareth Nazareth, to these places in order that he might reach, in order that they might see and experience the light that God has given in that way. And so God promises to shine light in those dark places, and he does so through his son. And so when we talk about Advent, one of the things we want to talk about is that God has come to reclaim his lost people, that God has come to restore the joy that has been lost through sin and through our actions. And so God does that through sending the Calvary in a couple different ways. He sends the Calvary to reclaim, and he sends him to Calvary. And in doing that, that in order that those of us who laugh him under the table might be made right and might be rejoined and might be illumined and might be converted and might be guided afresh to him. And what's also interesting about all of this, as I prepare to close, 
is that the scripture calls us, it says that we, by virtue of our union with him, that we are the light, that he extend that same light also exists within us in order that we might uh, extend God's salvation to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus is this illuminating light figure. And part of what I want to do over the next, this next on, um, on Friday as we gather again is we're going to continue looking at this. And we're going to begin, we just looked at, we just looked at, um, We just looked at the promise of gloom's decrease and, and joy's increase. On Friday, we're going to look at the reason for gloom's decrease and joy's increase. And so we've just seen the promise, and then we're going to look more further and more deeply at the reason for joy's increase. And so God calls us to have a new joy, and he promises a new joy, and we'll see that as we continue on. So let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you. Thank you for your word. Pray, Father, that you would, uh, we thank you for the fact that, Lord, you are that light, that you are that light, Lord, that, uh, that shines upon us, Lord, though we have walked in darkness, just like your people and those um, who didn't know you, the Gentiles were walking in darkness. We are those Gentiles. We are proof positive of your work in that way. Lord, I pray that you would continue to give us strength and that you would continue to help us to follow you and walk with you. In your son's precious name we pray, amen.